I'm Rob Poynton from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest that includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember Innsmouth isn't just a place it's a state of mind. You're listening to KZOM Oleander Public Radio. and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Chapter 5 To Captain Blake alone, of all those persons on the summit of Mount Lawson, it was given to see and to know and be able to relate what transpired there and in the air above. For Blake— although he appeared like one dead, was never unconscious throughout his experience. Driving head-on toward the ship, he had emptied his drum of cartridges before he threw his plane over and down in a drive that escaped the onrush of the great craft by a scant margin, and that carried him down in company with the men and machines of the squadron that dived from above. He turned as they turned and climbed as they climbed for the advantage that altitude might give, and he climbed faster, his ship outdistanced them in that tearing, scrambling rush for the heights. The squadron was spiraling upward in close formation with his plane above them when the enemy struck. He saw that great shape swing around them, terrible in its silent swiftness, and like the others he failed to realize at first the net she was weaving. So thin was the gas and so rapid the circling of the enemy craft, they were captured and cut off inside the gaseous sphere before the purpose of the maneuver was seen or understood. He saw the first faint vapor form above him, swung over for a steep bank that carried him around the inside of the great cage of gas, and that showed him the spiraling planes as the first wisps of vapor swept past them. He held that bank with his swift machine, while below him a squadron of close-formed fighting craft dissolved before his eyes into unguided units. The formations melted, wings touched and locked, the planes fell dizzily or shot off in wild, ungoverned, swerving flight. The air was misty about him. It was fragrant in his nostrils. The world was swimming. 
It was gas, he knew, and with the light-headedness that was upon him so curiously like that of excessive altitudes, he reached unconsciously for the oxygen supply. The blast of pure gas in his face revived him for an instant, and in that instant of clear thinking his plan was formed. He threw his weight on stick and rudder, corrected the skid his ship was taking, and with one hand holding the tube of life-giving oxygen before his face, he drove straight down in a dive toward the earth. There were great weights fastened to his arm, it seemed, when he tried to bring the ship from her fearful dive. He moved only with greatest effort, and it was force of will alone that compelled his hands to do their work. His brain, as he saw the gleaming roundness of observatory buildings beneath him, was as clear as ever in his life, but his muscles, his arms and legs, refused to work, even his head. He was slowly sinking beneath a load of utter fatigue. The observatories were behind him. He must swing back. He could not last long, he knew. Each slightest movement was intolerable effort. Was this death, he wondered? But his mind was so clear. There were the buildings, the trees, how thickly they were massed beyond. He brought every ounce of willpower to bear, the throttle, and a slow glide in. He was losing speed. The stick must come back. The crashing branches whipped about him, bending, crackling, and the world went dark. There were stars above him when he awoke, and his back was wrenched and aching. He tried to move, to call, but found that the paralyzing effect of the gas still held him fast. He was lying on the ground, he knew. A door was open in a building beyond, and the light in the room showed him men, a small group of them, standing silent, while someone—yes, it was McGuire—shouted into a phone. The squadron, he was saying, lost, every plane down and destroyed. Blake is living, but injured. And then Blake remembered, and the tumbling, helpless planes came again before his eyes while he cursed silently at this freezing grip that would not let him cover his face with his hands to shut out the sight. The figure of a man hurried past him, nor saw the body lying helpless in the cool dark. McGuire was still at the phone. And the enemy ship? His mind, filled with a welter of words as he tried to find phrases to compass his hate for that ship, and then, as if conjured out of nothing by his thoughts, the great craft itself came in view, overhead, in all its mighty bulk. It settled down swiftly. It was riding on an even keel. And in silence and darkness it came from above. Blake tried to call out, but no sound could be formed by his paralyzed throat. Doors opened in silence, swinging down from the belly of the thing to show in the darkness square openings through which shot beams of brilliant yellow light. There were cages that lowered, great platforms in slings, and the platforms came softly to rest on the ground. They were moving with life, living beings clustered upon them thick in the dark. Oh, God! For an instant's release from the numbness that held his lips and throat to cry out one word. The shapes were passing now in the shelter of darkness, going toward the room. He could see McGuire's back turned toward the door. Man-shapes, tall and thin, distorted humans, each swathed in bulging garments, horrible staring eyes of glass in the masks about their heads, and each hand ready with a shining weapon as they stood waiting for the men within to move. McGuire must have seen them first, though his figure was half concealed from Blake where he was lying. But he saw the head turn, knew by the quick twist of the shoulders the man was reaching for a gun. One shot echoed in Blake's ears. 
One bulging figure spun and fell awkwardly to the ground. Then the weapons in those clumsy hands hissed savagely, while jets of vapor, half liquid and half gas, shot blindingly into the room. The faces dropped from his sight. There had been the clamor of surprised and shouting men. There was silence now, and the awkward figures in the bloated casings that protected their bodies from the gas passed in safety to the room. Blake, bound in the invisible chains of enemy gas, struggled silently, futilely, to pit his will against this grip that held him. To lie there helpless, to see these men slaughtered. He saw one of the creatures push the body of his fallen comrade out of the way. It was cast aside with an indifferent foot. They were coming back. Blake saw the form of McGuire in unmistakable khaki. He and another man were carried high on the shoulders of some of the invaders. They were going toward the platforms, the slings beneath the ship. They passed close to Blake, and again he was unnoticed in the dark. A clamor came from distant buildings, a babble of howls and shrieks, inhuman, unearthly. There were no phrases or syllables, but to Blake it was familiar. Somewhere he had heard it. And then he remembered the radio and the weird wailing note that told of communication. These things were talking in the same discordant din. They were gathering now on the platforms slung under the ship, a whistling note from somewhere within the great structure, and the platforms went high in the air. They were loaded, he saw, with papers and books and instruments plundered from the observatories. Some made a second trip to take up the loot they had gathered. Then the black doorways closed. The huge bulk of the ship floated high above the trees. It took form, dwindled smaller and smaller, then vanished from sight in the star-studded sky. Blake thought of their unconscious passenger, the slim figure of Lieutenant McGuire. Mac had been a close friend and a good one. His ready smile, his steady eyes that could tear a problem to pieces with their analytic scrutiny, or gaze far into space to see those visions of a dreamer. Far into space. Blake repeated the words in his mind, and— "'Good-bye, Mac,' he said softly. "'You've shipped for a long cruise, I'm thinking.' He hardly realized he had spoken the words aloud. Lying there in the cold night, he felt his strength returning slowly. The pines sang their soothing, whispered message, and the faint night noises served but to intensify the silence of the mountain. It was some time before the grind of straining gears came faintly in the air, to announce the coming of a car up the long grade, and still later he heard it come to a stop some distance beyond. There were footsteps and voices calling. He heard the voice of Colonel Boynton, and he was able to call out in reply, even to move his head and turn it to see the approaching figures in the night. Colonel Boynton knelt beside him. "'Did they get you, old man?' he asked. "'Almost,' Blake told him. "'My oxygen. I was lucky.' But the others— He did not need to complete the sentence. The silent canyons among those wooded hills told plainly the story of the lost men. "'We will fight them with gas masks,' said the Colonel. "'Your experience has taught us the way. "'Gas-tight uniforms and our own supplies of oxygen,' Blake supplemented. He told Boynton of the man-things he had seen come from the ship, of their baggy suits, their helmets— and he had seen a small generator on the back of each helmet. He told him of the small shining weapons and their powerful jets of gas, deadly and unescapable at short range, he well knew. They got McGuire, Blake concluded, carried him off a prisoner. 
took another man, too. For a moment Colonel Boynton's quiet tones lost their even steadiness. "'We'll get them,' he said savagely, and it was plain that it was the invaders that filled his mind. "'We'll go after them, and we'll get them in spite of their damn gas, and we'll rip their big ship into ribbons.' Captain Blake was able to raise a dissenting hand. "'We will have to go where they are, Colonel, to do that.' Colonel Boynton stared at him. "'Well?' he demanded. "'Why not?' "'We can't go where they went,' said Blake simply. "'I laughed at McGuire, told him not to be a fool, but I was the fool, the blind one. We all were, Colonel. That thing came here out of space. It has gone back. It is far beyond our air. I saw it go up out of sight, and I know. Those creatures were men, if you like, but no men that we know, not those shrieking, wailing devils, and we're going to hear more from them, now that they've found their way here.' CHAPTER Six. A score of bodies where men had died in strangling fumes in the observatories on Mount Lawson. One of the country's leading astronomical scientists vanished utterly. The buildings on the mountaintop ransacked, papers and documents blowing in vagrant winds, tales of a monster ship in the air, incredibly huge, unbelievably swift. There are matters that at times are not allowed to reach the press, but not happenings like these, and the papers of the United States blazed out with headlines to tell the world of this latest mystery. Then came corroboration from far corners of the world. The mystery ship had not visited one section only. It had made a survey of the whole civilized sphere, and the tales of those who had seen it were no longer laughed to scorn, but went on the wires of the great press agencies to be given to the world and with that the censorship imposed by the Department of War broke down, and the tragic story of the destruction of the 91st Air Squadron passed into written history. The wild tale of Captain Blake was on every tongue. An invasion from space. The idea was difficult to accept. There were scoffers who tried to find something here for their easy wit. Why should we be attacked? What had that other world to gain? There was no answer ready but the silent lips of the men who had fallen spoke eloquently of the truth, and the world, in wonder and consternation, was forced to believe. Were there more to come? How meet them? Was this war? And with whom? What neighboring planet could reasonably be suspected? What had science to say? The scientists! The scientists! The clamor of the world was beating at the doors of science and demanding explanations and answers and science answered. A conference was arranged in London. The best minds in the realms of astronomy and physics came together. They were the last to admit the truth that would not be denied, but admit it they must, and to some of the questions they found their answer. It was not Mars, they said, though this in the popular mind was the source of the trouble. Not Mars, for that planet was far in the heavens, but Venus, misnamed for the goddess of love, it was Venus, and she alone, who by any stretch of the imagination could be threatening Earth. What did it mean? They had no answer. The ship was the only answer to that. Would there be more? Could we meet them? Defeat them? And again the wise men of the world refused to hazard a guess. But they told what they knew, that Venus was past her eastern elongation, was approaching the Earth. She of all the planets that swung around the sun came nearest to Earth, twenty-six million miles in another few weeks. 
Then whirling away she would pass to the western elongation in a month and a half and drive out into space. Venus circled the sun in a year of 225 days, and in 534 days she would again reach her eastern elongation with reference to the earth and draw near us again. They were reluctant to express themselves, these men who made nothing of weighing and analyzing stars a million of light-years away. But if the popular conception was correct, and if we could pass through the following weeks without further assault, we could count on a year and a half before the menace would again return. And in a year and a half, well, the physicists would be working, and we might be prepared. Captain Blake had made his report, but this, it seemed, was not enough. He was ordered to come to Washington, and with Colonel Boynton he flew across the country to tell again his incredible story. It was a notable gathering before which he appeared. All the branches of the service were represented. There were men in the uniform of admirals and generals, there were heads of departments, and the Secretary of War was in charge. He told his story, did Blake, before a battery of hostile eyes. This was not a gathering to be stampeded by wild scareheads, nor by popular clamor. They wanted facts, and they wanted them proved. But the gravity with which they regarded the investigation was shown by their invitation to the representatives of foreign powers to attend. "'I have told you all that happened,' Blake concluded, up to the coming of Colonel Boynton. May I reiterate one fact? I do not wonder at your questioning my state of mind and my ability to observe correctly. But I must insist, gentlemen, that while I got a shot of their gas and my muscles and my nervous system were paralyzed, my brain was entirely clear. I saw what I saw. Those creatures were there. They entered the buildings. They carried off Lieutenant McGuire and another man. What they were or who they were I cannot say. I do not know that they were men, but their insane shrieking and that queer unintelligible talk is significant, and that means of communication corresponds with the radio reception of which you know. If you gentlemen know of any part of this earth that can produce such a people, if you know of any people or country in this world that can produce such a ship, then we can forget all our wild fancies, and we can prepare to submit to that country and that people as the masters of this earth. For I must tell you, gentlemen, with all the earnestness at my command, that until you have seen that ship in action, seen its incredible speed, its maneuverability, its lightning-like attack and its curtain of gas, you can have no conception of our helplessness, and the insignia that she carries is the flag of our conquerors." Blake got an approving nod from the Secretary of War as he took his seat. That quiet man rose slowly from his chair to add his words. He spoke earnestly, impressively. "'Captain Blake has hit the nail squarely on the head,' he stated. "'We have here in this room a representative gathering from the whole world. If there is any one of you who can say that this mystery ship was built and manned by your people, let him speak, and we will send you at once a commission to acknowledge your power and negotiate for peace." The great hall was silent, in a silence that held only uneasy rustlings as men glanced at one another in wondering dismay. "'The time has come,' said the Secretary, with solemn emphasis, "'when all dissensions among our peoples must cease. Whatever there is or ever has been of discord between us fades into insignificance before this new threat. It is the world now against a power unknown. We can only face it as a united world. I shall recommend to the President of the United States that a commission be appointed, 
that it may cooperate with similar bodies from all lands. I ask you, gentlemen, to make like representations to your governments, to the end that we may meet this menace as one country and one man. Meet it, God grant, successfully through a War Department of the world. It was a brave gesture of the President of the United States. He dared the scorn and laughter of the world in standing behind his Secretary of War. The world is quick to turn and rend with ridicule a false prophet, and despite the unanswerable facts, the scope and power of the menace was not entirely believed. It was difficult for the conscious minds of men to conceive of the barriers of vast space as swept aside and the earth laid open to attack. England was slow to respond to the invitation of the President. This matter required thought and grave deliberation in Parliament. It might not be true. The thought, whether spoken or unexpressed, was clinging to their minds. And even if true, even if this lone ship had wandered in from space, there might be no further attack. Why, they asked, should there be more unprovoked assaults from the people of another planet? What was their object? What had they to gain? Perhaps we were safe after all. The answer that destroyed all hope came to them borne in upon a wall of water that swept the British coast. The telescopes of the world were centered now on just one object in the heavens. The bright evening star that adorned the western sky was the target for instruments great and small, and it became under magnification a gleaming crescent. A crescent that emitted from the dark sphere it embraced vivid flashes of light. Sykes' report had ample corroboration. The flash was seen by many, and it was repeated the next night and the next. What was it? the waiting world asked, and the answer came not from the telescopes and their far-reaching gaze, but from the waters of the Atlantic. In the full blaze of day came a meteor that swept to the earth in an arc of fire to outshine the sun. There must have been those who saw it strike, passengers and crews of passing ships, but its plunge into the depths of the Atlantic spelled death for each witness. The earth trembled with the explosion that followed. A gas, some new compound that united with water to give volumes tremendous, that only could explain it. The ocean rose from its depths and flung wave after wave to race outward in circles of death. Hundreds of feet in height at their source, this could only be estimated, they were devastating when they struck. The ocean raged over the frail bulwark of England in wave upon wave, and, retreating, the waters left smooth, shining rock where cities had been. The stone and steel of their buildings was scattered far over the desolate land, or drawn in the suction of retreating waters to the sea. Ireland, too, and France, and Spain. Even the coast of America felt the shock of the explosion, and was swept by tidal waves of huge proportions. But the coast of Britain took the blow at its worst. The world was stunned, and waiting, waiting, when the next blow fell. The flashes were coming from Venus at regular intervals, just twenty hours and nineteen minutes apart, and with exactly the same time intervals the bolts arrived from space to lay waste the earth. They struck where they would, the ocean again, the Sahara, in the mountains of China, the Pacific was thrown into fearful convulsions, the wheat-fields of Canada trembled and vanished before a blast of flaming gas. Twenty hours and nineteen minutes. Where it would strike next, the next star-shell, no man might say. That it surely would come was a deadly and nerve-shattering certainty. The earth waited and prayed, 
under actual bombardment. Some supergun, said science with conviction, a great bore in the planet itself, perhaps. But it was fixed, and the planet itself aimed with an accuracy that was deadly, aimed once as each revolution brought its gun on the target. Herein, said science, lay a basis for hope. If in that distant world there was only one such bore, it must be altering its aim as the planet approached. The gun must cease to bear upon the earth, and the changing sweep of the missile's flight confirmed their belief. Each meteor shell that came rushing into earth's embrace burned brilliantly as it tore into the air, and each flaming arc was increasingly bent until twenty hours and nineteen minutes had passed. Twenty minutes, thirty, another hour, and the peoples of the earth dropped humbly to their knees in thankful prayer, or raised vengeful eyes and clenched fists toward the heavens, while their quivering lips uttered blasphemous curses. The menace for the time had passed. The great gun of Venus no longer was aiming toward the earth. No more ships, was the belief, not this time, and the world turned to an accounting of its losses, and to wonder, wonder, what the planet's return would bring. A year and one-half was theirs, one year and a half in which to live in safety, in which to plan and build. A column, double-leaded, in the London Times, voiced the feeling of the world. It was copied and broadcast everywhere. Another attack, it concluded, is not a probability, it is a certainty. They are destroying us for some reason known only to themselves. Who can doubt that when the planet returns there will be a further bombardment, an invasion by armed forces in giant ships, bombs dropped from them miles high in the air? This is what we must look forward to, death and destruction dealt out by a force we are unable to meet. Our munitions factories may build larger guns, but can they reach the heights at which these monster ships of space will lie, with any faint probability of inflicting damage? It is doubtful. Our aircraft is less than useless. Its very name condemns it as inept. Craft of the air. And we have to war against spaceships which can rise beyond the thin envelope of gas that encircles the earth. The world is doomed, utterly and finally doomed. It is the end of humankind, slavery to a conquering race at the very best, unless... Let's face the facts fairly. It is war, war to the death between the inhabitants of this world and of that other. We are men. What they are, God alone can say. But they are creatures of mind as we are. What they have done, we may do. There is our only hope. It is vain, perhaps, preposterous in its assumption, but our sole and only hope. We must meet the enemy and defeat him, and we must do it on his own ground. To destroy their fleet we must penetrate space, to silence their deadly bombardment we must go out into space as they have done, reach their distant world as they have reached ours, and conquer as we would have been conquered. It is a tenuous hope, but our only one. Let our men of mundane warfare do their best. It will be useless. But if there be one spark of God-given genius in the world that can point the way to victory, let those in authority turn no deaf ear. It is a battle now of minds and the best minds will win. Humanity, all humankind, is facing the end. In less than one year and a half we must succeed or perish. And unless we conquer finally and decisively, 
The story of man in the history of the universe will be a tale that is told, a record of life in a book that is ended, closed, and forgotten through all eternity. End of chapters 5 and 6